good to be here. Good morning, everyone. Uh, I want to give a special, uh, once again, a Mother's Day wish to all the mothers here who are here. We want to honor you, respect, and love you. I also want to give a special shout out to my mom. She's seated somewhere. Um, she's from another church, but uh, ever since the start of this year, she has been coming for my sermons. <laughs> she's a huge encouragement. I, I'm, I'm very honest when I say that um, I wouldn't be here if not for her. I think about 11 years ago, I was living in sin and. Uh, um, emotionally and uh, spiritually just uh, far from the Lord and uh, she was in East Timor for missions and she kept praying for me and uh, she encouraged me to come to Cornerstone and uh, um, mothers do not do not dismiss the power of prayer the importance and the power of a praying mom if you are a mom here and you're praying for the salvation of your kids um, let me tell you that God answers prayers amen and now she's seated here listening to her son speaking. Um, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Luke chapter 15. But before that, let's start with a word of prayer. Father, we give thanks for your word. Lord, we submit ourselves to the authority of the word of God. And Father, even as we are exposed to the grace of God, we know that you will always go after our hearts. And Father, I pray in the name of Jesus, we ask not to be informed. We don't want more knowledge, that's all. But we want to be transformed into the image of your son. We bless you, we honor you, and all God's people say, Amen. In the Gospels, Every time Jesus performs a sign or engages in discourse, it is not just to reveal to the world how powerful or how wise he is. It serves three purposes. First, it reveals the nature of the Father. Second, to dismantle false worldviews. And third, to transform hearts. And today we will look at the Gospels um, from Luke and even in John to see what happens when someone is exposed to the grace of our Lord. It is impossible to remain unaffected. And as you open up the Gospels and look at the different characters, you will realize that you can't draw near and not have a response. If you're seated in his presence long enough and you start to diligently listen to what he says, and he starts breaking down our wrong convictions and starts exposing our hearts, it's going to get difficult just to remain a normal, comfortable spectator. Am I right? You're either going to get really upset and you leave, or your hearts are going to be transformed by his love. Amen? And this morning, I want to take us through a few scriptures. And through this journey, I pray our eyes will marvel at the grace of our Lord. Together in our time today, we will look at three segments. Who were the groups of people who drew near to Jesus? And what were their mindsets or what were their worldviews? Second, how Jesus dismantled those false worldviews and renewed their minds. And lastly, we will see the work of grace in those who responded to him. In the, in the days of the Old Testament, there were two prevalent worldviews, religious worldviews that the people had in those days. First, I'll call them the religious worldview. And this view shows that I have been a rule follower since birth. I'm morally upright. And also, because of that, I believe that since I have been a religious person all my life, I'm definitely favoured by the Lord. I deserve God's mercy and grace, and good things should only happen to me and people like me. So that's the religious worldview. Next is the rejected worldview. And it shows that there might be a God. But I'm so entrenched in sin. I'm living in sin. So I'm already rejected from the presence of God. So I do whatever I want and make the most out of my life. 
Now, every time Jesus enters the picture, every time he preaches and teaches, he's dismantling one worldview and reconstructing another. Some of you are looking really lost right now. But for context, let's go to Luke chapter 15. And you cannot understand Luke 15 without understanding verse 1. If you miss verse 1, you have missed the whole point and more than likely you will proof text the rest of this chapter. The whole key to this chapter hinges on who is in the crowd to hear these parables. So let's look together, all right? Today we're going to do a bit more teaching. If you're going to open your Bible to verse 1, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. I want to stop here and break this down for all of us. I recently saw a book that my son was reading on Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Uh, and it shows that uh, he was hated by everyone because he um, gathered more money. He received more money than he should, okay? But, and we always think of, oh, Zacchaeus, the short man that climbed up the tree. But let me share with you in a greater context about the Roman Empire and why the tax collectors were so hated, so to speak. They were the most powerful empire during the first century, the Roman Empire, and they were also famous for their cruelty. There are historical accounts about having about 30 to 40,000 men, women, and children crucified outside of cities. I mean, can you get your mind understanding and trying to imagine 30 to 40,000 men, women, and children being impaled and being hoisted on crosses outside a city just to remind everyone on the power of Rome. They were a ruthless and incredibly pagan group of people who ruled the world at this point. So I want to walk you through this, okay? How do you police an entire empire ranging from England all the way to India without quick strikeability? For example, right now, if you want to attack a group of people, press one button, boom. But in those days, there's no such thing as missiles, right? How do you police an entire landmass? You need to have a huge empire. And the only way to fund a huge empire is by taxes. So in the first century, tax collectors were Jews who paid Rome. They give up their own, their own money, their own savings for the right to gather taxes against their own people. Can you imagine if you're a religious man in the crowd and you see your family being slaughtered two towns over by Rome and you knew it occurred because this tax collector had been raising funds for this entire army. So do you now begin to understand why the crowd gets furious when Jesus says, Zacchaeus, Today, I'm going to your house today. Zacchaeus was an Israelite who purchased the right from Rome to raise funds for an oppressive occupying army that was responsible for the brutal death of hundreds and thousands of people. But here's the thing. Tax collectors were drawing near to hear Jesus. And they are not the only ones. Sinners are there too. In verse 1, it says sinners. And for us to understand sinners, we have to get out of the Western mindset. Because in the West here, if you are in church, you will say, I'm a sinner, you are a sinner, the whole world is a sinner. But in those days, a sinner is marked as a class of people. You are either deformed, diseased, or whose job is one that the Jews would have considered irreparable. So they were either prostitutes or slave traders or having the, the, uh, a kind of physical ailment that the Jews viewed as a curse from the Lord. So a tax collector and a sinner who have been taught from the first day they received their gift of breath that they could never enter the presence of God. They were taught from young that because God had judged them, there was no forgiveness for them. They were not allowed in the synagogue. They were not allowed to make sacrifices. And yet, Scripture says they are here gathering near to hear Jesus. 
And let me tell you this, where the true gospel is being preached, even the tax collectors will push close to hear him. And the scripture says the tax collectors and sinners, they are not the only ones at the party, so to speak. Okay, because in verse 2, it says the Pharisees and the scribes were there. They grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And the Pharisees and scribes, they are the other end of the spectrum, okay? You have your tax collectors and your sinners, and you've got your Pharisees and your scribes. Now, these people are, to be honest, better than all of us. They lived in such a way that are so morally upright that they believe that their moral uprightness has carried favor with the Lord, and God will not extend the same grace to other people. So what Jesus does, he dismantles, and he reconstructs. One group thing they can never enter the presence of God, and the other thing that they, they are the only ones who deserve the grace and mercy of God. So let's look at it. In verse 3, he tells them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. You can look at the dismantling of both sides that's going on. Let's look at the worldviews. If you are over here and you think that God could never love you, even if you come to him. I mean, from a young age, you were told you can never step into the temple of God. There's no way he could forgive you. And he's dismantling and going, no, 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 forget about you coming to me because guess what? I'm coming to you. And when I find you, I'm not going to say, oh, you foolish, ignorant, sinful sheep. No, I'm going to put you on my shoulder. I'm going home. I'm going to celebrate your return. Amen? And he was saying that there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And he's saying to both the religious leaders as well as the tax collectors that if one of these tax collectors repents, God will rejoice more in that man's repentance than in all of their ritual purity. Do you see the reconstruction that's taking, them, taking place over here? He tore down both belief systems and he, he rebuilt another one. Let's jump to the next story. It's probably the, well, the most well-known in Luke chapter 15, and it's, and it's in verse 11. It says, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me this share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. In verse 14 now. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pots that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Can I say this, okay? To refuse sonship to the father almost completely guarantees slavery to something else. Am I right? Keep in mind that these are Jews, and this man's eating with the pigs, an unclean animal. But in verse 17, it says, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I like this word, when he came to himself. This is what happened to me 11 years ago. Due to the prayer of my mom, I came to myself, what a fool have I been. Let me draw near to the presence of God. Parents, right, if you're praying for your kids, pray for them to reach this moment that by the grace of God, their eyes are open. They came to themselves and say, 
what a fool have I been. I need to go back to the presence of God. And he said, and he said I will say to my father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no lo- longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now, because if you are a tax collector and a sinner, and you're hearing this story right now about how the son is going back to the father and will have to be a slave to the father to be accepted. So they're going, ah, that makes sense. He has to be a slave because he did this devious thing. He dared to ask for inheritance. It's right that he becomes a slave. Now the religious leaders confirm getting very happy because this is finally a parable that they like. They must be thinking, oh, finally we get to see how God is going to rebuke them and cast them out. I love this story, Jesus. Finally, the first two parables I don't like. This one, what I like. Come on, Jesus, whack them. And let's keep reading because both mindsets are so wrong. In verse 20, he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quickly bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate for this day my son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. The son in the story shows up and says, okay, I'll be your servant. But actually, wait, if you, if you think about it, if you read the scripture, he didn't even get to have the opportunity to say, let me be your servant. Because the father immediately interrupts him and says, forget it, man. Bring the car, bring the ring, because I'm going to love you. You are my son. And let's keep going. Now the older son was in the field, and as he came near and drew near to the house, he heard dancing and music. Well, this is like clubbing. Huh? If you're so far away and you heard dancing and, and singing, that means the music is really, really, really loud. Okay. And he called one of his servants and asked what these things mean. Can I just say this to you? Older brothers, whenever they have a question or doubt, they don't go to the father straight. They always talk to the hired servants first. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him. His father backed him, pleaded with him, said, come in, please, please don't do this. Come in to our family. This is the similarity and the difference between an elder brother and a lover of God. Both the elder brother and a lover of God were both seek to do the will of God. Can I say something? That if your heart is not touched by grace when you are a rule follower, the idea that God could love someone who doesn't follow the rules as well as you do can be the most agitating thing in the world. And it's so easy to pass judgment on other people. You will really despise any kind of preaching that says there's grace and mercy for those who don't follow the rules as well as you do. What makes you a lover of Christ is not so much whether you are obeying the will of God, but why you are obeying Him. Am I making sense? And here's where I think we need to be very careful. Because if all you do is switch the characters in the story, we are no better off. What do I mean? Listen to this. If you show grace and mercy to the tax collectors, the sinners, and the younger brothers, but you show no grace and mercy to the older brother, then you are in the same worldview. You are in the same religious worldview that Jesus came to dismantle. If the, religi- if the sinners and broken people get all your mercy, but the religious self-righteous members get none, then we are still operating in the same place. Let's finish this out, okay? Verse 28, but he was angry and refused to go in. 
But let's look at this. His father came out and entreated him. And he answered his father, Look, these years I have served you, I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. The older son will always complain about not receiving a goat while being blind to all that his father has always been giving him. That sort of mentality. And the father said to him, Son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for he was lost, but now he is found. May God make cornerstone this place where there's grace and mercy, not just for the tax collectors, not just for the seniors, but for the older brothers also. The point of my message is this. In some season of our lives, we are tax collectors. We are the younger brothers. We are the lost sheep. And we might even be the older brother but we have all been given the grace of God. Transformation can happen when you sit under the reservoir of His grace and let Him transform you. And I, I think I have to be very honest with you because sometimes I'm more gracious to the younger brother. I love stories of redemption. I feel for the wayward and the sinners. But to be honest, when I first read Luke 15, I was like, come on, man, let's tear down. Let's tear down the elder brothers. Whack the Pharisees. Go, Jesus. I always thought that Jesus hated the Pharisees and there was no hope for them. I really thought for all so many years. But then I read verse 28. And what did verse 28 say? It says the father entreated the older brother to come home. When you read Luke 15, you would think that, ah, oh, Jesus is whacking the Pharisees, but he's hinting to the Pharisees, please come home. I know you are angry that they're coming close to me, but I'm looking at you. Come home to me. Come home to me. Both the older brother and the younger brother are prodigals. I don't think it's just the prodigal son, but it's the prodigal sons. And both needed the grace and mercies of God, and God extends to them both. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Amen? So what happens to those who encounter the Lord? Those who draw near to listen and do not just get inspired and motivated and informed but something radical happens. We have seen how Jesus dismantled the different worldviews. Now let's look at people in the two worldviews, the rejected worldview as well as the religious worldview, and see what happens when he encounters them. This is quite exciting. For our first account, let's jump all the way to the Gospel of John, John chapter 4, and the account of the woman, the Samaritan woman and at the well with Jesus. Okay, it's a very precious story. We all know this story by heart, right? Um, let me just summarize for you. Jesus spoke to the woman and said, give me a drink. And then the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it you, a Jew, would come to ask from me, a woman of Samaria, for a drink? And they begin to have this exchange, this conversation between both of them. And Jesus shared with her on him being the living waters of eternal life. It's quite interesting to note that in verse 15, she responded to the altar call and she said, please give me the living waters. But Jesus immediately responded very strangely. He did not, he did not just give them the answer. He did not say, okay, here is how you get the waters. Okay, but he touched a sore point in her life, something that she has tried to keep hidden. And Jesus showed something really perplexing. His idea of pastoral care is really unique. Okay? I keep thinking if I'm the one doing, let's say someone comes to church and say, oh, I just want to respond to the altar call. I want to know Christ. And then suddenly, um, God gave me a word of knowledge. I say, wow, you a prostitute. Why? I think I should get emails from Pastor Young. But if you look at the scripture, that's what Jesus did. 
She said, please give me the waters of living, the living waters that lead to eternal life. But he, let's, look at, let's look at this, okay? Because he aggressively pursued her heart. Verses 16 to 18, he said, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no, hus- I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. And what you said is true. When we see Verse 20, we see something very interesting, something so real and identifiable. She felt the pursuit of the Lord, of the hidden things in her heart, and she tried to deflect it into something else. She tried to deflect the question and tried to debate theology. In verse 20, she responded, Ah, our ancestors worship on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. It is in my experience that Jesus was oftentimes go after the wounds of your heart, the idols, the besetting sin, the shame, and people will self-protect with deflections, with doctrines and excuses. They will self-protect with religious debate. We might initially respond to a message, to a correction, but when the Lord uses someone to press in deeper, to touch a hidden point of our heart, it's so easy to have a fight-or-flight response. It's so easy to self-deflect with religious theological deflections. But we see the grace and the wisdom of our Lord right here. He's basically saying, I see your theological maneuvering trying to deflect me from your wound, but we don't have to worry about that because I'm here and because I'm here, true worshippers are going to worship me, not just in this mountain, not just in Jerusalem, but in spirit and in truth. But why did he pursue her heart in such a manner? He was not subtle about it. The omniscient one did not make a mistake. He knew about her five husbands, but he ruthlessly touched a sensitive and tender issue of her heart, and he did it because he loved her. Because to expose her deepest pain is to reveal to her that she needed redemption and healing. It's an epic tragedy that most of the time, the place that Jesus wants to do his most significant work is the place that you and I spend so much time trying to hide. There's this spot that Jesus wants to get in to heal. And he wants to make us whole again so we can experience streams of living waters. But when Jesus comes to us and says, go get your husband, we hide. We don't want to proceed. It's too painful. But by the grace of God, she was cleansed and healed. She responded to grace. And the very thing that she was hiding becomes the thing that propels her to mission. Isn't that amazing? The very thing that she didn't want to tell anybody about was the very thing that she was led to to share the gospel. She said to the entire town, he told me everything that I have ever done. I want to break this down to you, that the entire city believed. I don't think it was just because of the word of knowledge, okay? But she was hiding for years, drawing water when no one else sees, okay? Can you imagine, within, don't know, 30 minutes, suddenly this woman who was living in shame suddenly come out and say, He told me everything I've done. I know you know, you know I know, but I don't care. Because he has transformed me. And that immediate transformation led the entire city to believe. It was not just the words of knowledge. Can I tell you this? Your deepest wounds are likely become your greatest opportunity for ministry. Can I tell you this? There will be many go-get-your-husband moments that we will face. And it's gifted not because he's a cruel God, but because he's altogether good. And he loves you. And when I mention Luke chapter 15, verse 1, it says the sinners were drawn near. 
But let me tell you this, they were drawn near because they are captivated by Jesus' glory and his messages and his signs and wonders. But in his love, he will not just leave them captivated, but he will aggressively pursue their hearts until they are made whole. Amen? Don't just give solemn vows to the Lord. When he touched a sore point in your heart, respond to him. Amen? Let me give you another example to reinforce, okay? This is also found in John, but in chapter 8, Jesus and a woman caught in adultery. We all know this story. The woman was caught and was exposed by the religious leaders. They wanted to stone her, but their main motive was to trap Jesus. And the trap was twofold because um, in those days, capital punishment cannot be done by, um, by the Jews, okay? You can only kill someone when you go to the Roman governor. That's why when Jesus was about to be crucified, they had to get permission, okay? So this is twofold because if Jesus said, okay, kill her, they can go to the Roman governor and say, hey, this guy, rebellion. But if Jesus said, no, don't kill her, they say, oh, you're on the side of sinners and disregarding Moses' law. They thought they were very smart. But Jesus, in his wisdom and mercy, dismantles their trap. And one by one, they left, and Jesus was alone with her. He turns to her and says something which is the heart of the gospel. You know, sometimes I hear people say Christianity means you're always covered by grace, which is true. Grace covers all sin, then that's all. But Jesus revealed something powerful here. Are you ready for it? Because this is not just the heart of the gospel, because he says them both, but because of the order in which he says them. He says, neither do I condemn you, go and live your life of sin. First of all, he's essentially saying, this is a sin. You know, I know, they did not make a mistake. You really committed adultery, all right? But he says, I don't condemn you. Wait a minute. He could either say consistently, you are guilty, therefore I condemn you, or you are not guilty, therefore I don't condemn you. But he said, thou art guilty, but I don't condemn you. But I don't condemn you. Forgiveness is more than being let, let off. It's more than being given a clean start. Forgiveness wants to put the future right. If you really love someone, you're not just concerned to get the past out of the way, but you want to get the future straightened. So Jesus added words that changed the entire situation. He said, go, I release you, but I restrain you at the same time. Don't do it again. If you heard Jesus say that to you, you have one of the strongest impulses to not do it again. It's the difference between law and love. The law can only punish the wrongdoer, but love can put the wrongdoer right. Love will always be able to go further than the law. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Next up, I really want, I really want you to see this, okay? Because immediately in verse 12, verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. In those days, there's no chapters. Huh? Now you've got different chapters and verses and everything, right? But you can see there's a smooth transition, okay? And it's not just um, a random thing, a uh, random discourse or sermon, but Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will have the light of life and will never walk in, dust, in darkness. And you need to know that Jesus said this after the woman has left. Jesus will never tell us to do something without giving us the solution to do it. He gives the answer to this whole situation. How does Jesus know that this woman will not sin again? How will he know that he will, um, she will not go back to the next man that she meets? Let me share with you this. The light does two things. It hurts and it helps. What do I mean by this? If you watch documentaries or news stories about um, kids who are kidnapped in a basement for years or months, um, they're... they're 24-7, they're in darkness. Suddenly, they're released, right? Then they're they are, they are let out. What's the first thing they do? 
They do this, right? Because they're exposed to light. Let me tell you this. Light hurts. When God reveals the things of our heart, it's painful. But it also helps by guiding you to truth. And Jesus will not just say, ah, don't sin, I forgive you. But he's saying that keep your eyes on me and sometimes I will aggressively pursue your heart and reveal, not to people, but to you, the things that I need to make straighten. What are you going to respond when I do that? Like hurts, yet it helps and guides. Amen? Amen? Okay, lastly, okay, I do have five minutes, okay. I talked about the religious worldview. Now I'm going to talk about, no, I talked about the rejected worldview. Now I'm going to talk about someone from the religious mindset. And it's John chapter 3. It's about Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a leader with a religious mindset. He was a member of the Sahindrin, okay. And the scripture says that he came in the middle of the night. He was afraid of what his colleagues might think. So he came in the middle of the night asking about the signs that Jesus has performed. And this is quite interesting. God, he said, Rabbi, we saw the signs. We know you, you, you must be from God. And Jesus was not like, oh, thank you. No, immediately he said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And five times in this passage, we have a reference to being born again or born from heaven, born from above. Born from above. And Jesus is very straightforward here. He's saying that at the end of the day, you are a religious man. And you think that I'm going to give you extra tools to, to, to proceed on in your journey of purity. But let me tell you this. You need to start from ground zero. You need to start from scratch one. You need to go back to day one. It's not just an adding on to your religious rules, your religious things, but I'm going to ask you to go back to ground zero. You need to be born again. And Jesus' call to the new birth is not a call to morality and religion. It's a challenge to morality and religion. He's coming to the most impeccably moral person, saying to him, you have to be born again. You have to start at ground zero. Everything you have done in the past counts for nothing. All right? Because Christianity is not an addition to what you have done. It's a whole new birth. Jesus does not come to make bad people good or good people better. He came to make dead people live again. Dead hearts to come to life. He's saying, ah, come on, man. It's quite amazing that when you look at the woman at the well and, and Nicodemus, he did not say to Nicodemus, you need to have living waters and the woman at the well, you need to, um, to be born again. But he switched over. He said to the most... The, the person with PhD, the, the religious leader, the one who knows the Torah, he said, no, 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 you need to be born again. I don't need you to add, add, in, uh, add any additional thing to your, to your belief. No, you need to start from scratch because all your life, you've been having this worldview that only you deserve the grace of God. But I'm dismantling that and say, you need to be born again. You know what's fascinating about this? Because I don't know whether Nicodemus was saved at that moment. I do not know. Perhaps, I've been watching The Chosen and wow, I keep crying. I wish I can just show you and don't need to preach. <laughs> but it's a remarkable show, okay? And, uh, but let me just tell you this, that um, we see Nicodemus in the next few chapters. He was quiet for a while. And then suddenly, in, uh, if I'm not wrong, in chapter 7, we can see him uh, when the, the Jewish leaders wanted to send the guards to, to arrest Jesus. But they came back empty-handed. They said, why can't you arrest him? They say, ah, the way he speaks, we can't do anything. And they were like, huh, are you even converted? We are not converted. <laughs> but Nicodemus stood up and said, hey, please, if you cannot, you cannot do this, you need to go to the Roman governors. 
there's no evidence for him. So in a way, something happened in his heart. He's starting to change. But I don't know whether was he saved then. He could be. But we see once more where Nicodemus make his presence known. And this is in chapter 19. And this time we see the fruit of faith. Two prominent wealthy men doing extraordinary things. It was after the death of Jesus. And the first thing they did was they went to Pilate and said, can we have the body? To say that to the governor of a man who was arrested and killed for rebellion, wow, you're putting your head on the block. The next thing they did, they washed and anointed his body. It was one of the most demeaning tasks that you can ever do. Only women do that. But something happened in their hearts. Humility and bonus. They were secret believers at first because Nicodemus came in the middle of the night. Do you want people to see? But now in the presence of everyone, the Sahindrin and the Roman guys say, give me his body. Something happens. And let me tell you this. I do not know how the change takes place because from John chapter 3 all the way to John chapter 19, it's about two years. Change happens in the two years. It doesn't matter how long does it take, but there has to always be presence of resurrected life in you. And Nicodemus showed that. It's not in scripture, but um, there's historical accounts that say that they were eventually baptized by John and Peter. He was chased out. Nicodemus was chased out of the, the Sahindrin. And uh, there were accounts saying that one of his, his daughters was outside living in poverty, like picking the dung just to find grain because no one would give them work. And this rabbi came and said, who are you, daughter? What are you doing? She said, I'm the daughter of Nicodemus and we believe in Jesus Christ. And then the rabbi just walked away, left her. And he was eventually martyred for his faith, speared, if I'm not wrong. Something happens. The reason why I share all this with you is Jesus will dismantle our false convictions. He will press into the deepest corners of our heart. He will aggressively pursue our hearts. The question is, what do we do when grace comes? Can we just rise to our feet? Justification is instantaneous. He called you just. But sanctification is progressive. We are on a journey to Zion. When something happens in our heart, we respond. There has to be fruits, evident fruits. Our family, our friends, they will see. Some of you might be secret believers. Your own colleagues don't even know whether you're Christian. But probably it's time to be bold. Humility and bonus walks hand to hand. Let's lift up your hands. Father, we give thanks for this time. Father, we are all recipients of your grace. We have been prodigals before. We were either um, the sheep that was lost, the coin that was lost, the brother that was lost. But Lord, you have, in your mercy and grace, called us back. And Father, we lift up our hands and say we cannot move on without your mercy. It is not by our self-will, it's not by our strength, but it's by the mercies of God. And Father, we pray in the name of Jesus, Lord, let us draw near by faith. Then when you put your hand, your finger on things of our hearts, Lord, we will respond to you. We will respond to you. We want to be changed and molded into the image of your Son. And Lord, I bless everyone here. Father, your word says that curses can be broken, but blessings can never be broken. 
And I bless everyone here, the blessings of God, the Father, the strength and grace of Christ the Son, and the fellowship and communion of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. And all God's people say, Amen. Thank you, everyone. You've just listened to a production of Cornerstone Community Church. Please note that all unauthorized reproduction, distribution, or sale of the recording is prohibited. For permission to reproduce or distribute the sermon, please write into mail at cscc.org.sg. We hope that you have been blessed.